1: Welcome, everyone, back to New Books in Education uh, on the New Books Network. This is Ryan Allen, your host for New Books in Education. Uh, And today I'm excited to uh, introduce a book that we have, uh, China's Rising Research University, A New Era of Global Ambition. And this is out of the Johns Hopkins University Press, and it's publishing later in 2014. Uh, And the authors that we have for this book today are Robert Rhodes, Xiao Wang, Xiao Guang Shi, and Sai Chang, and uh, today with me for the interview we have uh, Robert Rhodes, who is the director of globalization and higher education research, uh, the higher education research center at UCLA. Uh, so a little bit about the book before we bring on uh, Robert. This this book looks at uh, what is now the uh, largest uh higher education sector in all of the world and really just how uh the Chinese universities have been uh, internationalizing and pushing for uh, what comes up a lot that we see uh this quest for world class university standing um in, in the book they ask uh how are the working lives of professors uh changing at these uh leading universities in in uh in China and uh the leading universities that they talk about in the book uh, cuz they they this book offers a wide uh description of the educational system, uh, the higher educational system in China, but then it really goes into focus on uh four key case study universities and the first one they talk about is uh, Tsinghua University uh and the next one is Peking University, the other one Renmin University and then Minzu university, all located, uh, in Beijing. And so we can ask, uh, Dr. Rhodes, uh, why he chose those universities and what their significance are all very different, uh, but with, uh, very, uh, distinct, uh, characteristics that I think really guide and move the book, uh, along. And so, uh, without further ado, uh, uh, Robert Rhodes, thank you for joining me, uh, at New Books in Education. Uh, can you um, maybe just give me a little bit uh, your intellectual path, uh, how you got, how you kind of got started in this book, maybe interest in China. I know uh, you kind of had some connections to the Fulbright program. You can talk a little bit yes. about that.
2: Okay, thank you, Brian. Uh, thank you for having me on here on your show. Um, actually, I'm a sociologist by training uh, and m- m- mainly an ethnographer. Uh, in the past, my work is mostly focused on the U.S., and universities in the U.S., uh, although there was a period of time where I was also doing research in Latin America, uh, mainly in Mexico and Argentina. Starting around uh, 2004 or so, I began focusing more and more on China, uh, primarily for two reasons. One is my uh, ethnographic nature of wanting to explore complex and different cultures, Uh, And I don't think there's many cultures more complex than Chinese culture, Mm. which has such a long history. Uh, And the other our motivation, source of motivation, was the incredible change going on in Chinese society, but also in Chinese institutions, especially the educational institutions, such as universities. And so I wanted to be part of that. it was a few years later that I actually started studying the language, which Chinese language, Mandarin, and have been studying Mandarin uh, mostly on my own for the past four or five years. Um, probably, I would be in an intermediate level right now. Uh, I hope to eventually do all my ethnographic research in China in Chinese. I'm not, right. not quite there yet, uh, and so uh, this project really uh, sprung from, in part my Fulbright experience uh, at Minzu University. Minzu is the leading ethnic minority university in China. Approximately 60 to 70% of the students at Minzu are ethnic minorities, and about 40% of the faculty are ethnic minorities. And so I was at Minzu for one year, uh, collecting ethnographic data at the university. But previously, I had worked at Renmin University for a summer and had made multiple visits to Renmin and had actually done an ethnographic case study at Renmin as, as well. And so during my full year at Minsu, I was actually working on the second case that would eventually be a multi-case study project. Uh, during that year, that's when I met my colleagues in Beijing, and that's when we decided to do a more of a, a large-scale project and add uh, Peking and Tsinghua University. You, you mentioned that all these universities are in Beijing. Mm-hmm. This yep. is a strength and weakness of the book. Mm. Right? And not only are they in Beijing, they're on the same street. Right. All right. This is, uh, this is one of the unique qualities of China's uh, university system. First of all, there's no, no city in the world, to my knowledge, that has as many universities and university students as Beijing. Mm. Certainly no other city in China, even Shanghai, can compare Beijing in terms of the number of students they have. Uh, this is in part why the Tiananmen protests were so massive uh, back in 1989. Uh, you have 30, 40, 50 universities within walking distance of each other. Mm. You can walk from Minzu University, past Renmin University, to the gates of Peking University. Tsinghua is across the street from Peking. You can walk that that route in about 45 minutes to an hour, depending on how fast you walk. Okay, so uh, I say that that's the strength of this of the book, in that um, China has such incredible regional diversity that we, are in effect, controlled for the diversity of the different regions of China by focusing on Beijing. Uh, the downside to that is that we really uh, got a better portrait and developed a better understanding of what it means to be a research university or what it means to struggle to be a research university in China, but specifically in Beijing. And you could argue that, oh, a university in southwest China, such as Southwest University or Chongqing University, uh, would probably exhibit some different cultural forms, some different cultural practices. That's all true, and that again, that's a strength and a weakness to the study. Now, to, to complement, to 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 add to that, um, the book is based upon four intensive case studies, but it also includes visits to 12 or 13 other Mm. universities throughout China, including northeast China, southeast China, southwest China. Uh, The only region that really isn't represented is the the western region of Xinjiang province, uh, which is not the easiest place to travel Mm. to. Um, And so the book does incorporate some of those kinds of understandings, and then also keep in mind... My three co-authors are all Chinese uh, professors of education, of uh, comparative education, or of higher education. And so they have a rich understanding of the history and the diversity of the Chinese university. So those insights are built into different parts of the book, especially chapter one and the concluding chapter.
1: Absolutely. Fantastic. Yeah, uh, definitely Beijing, uh, having having gone there a few times myself and going to visit these universities it, it is quite... Uh, and, and definitely a spectacle to see for sure. Um, so I guess moving right along into that, that first chapter that you mentioned, you actually, you, got, you opened the book up uh, with talking about how China uh, had surpassed Japan as the uh, second largest economy in the world. And then also how uh, China had overtaken, um, I guess, sort of the U.S. and Japan in, uh, the, with the fastest supercomputer. And uh, right. I'm wondering, uh, you know, why, why you open with these, um, these sorts of uh, stories of how sort of uh, China has uh, overtaken yep. or moved forward?
2: I'm just uh, moving ahead to uh, one of my PowerPoint slides <laughs> that I'm giving later today. Nope. talk about this book in my class, no the reason I open with uh, a, a, a variety of facts, some of them are not that significant, for example, uh, China producing the fastest or the, the, the fastest supercomputer in the world, mm-hmm. uh, that might change next year, Certainly. Uh, but it was just simply one of many indicators that that, that that life is changing in China, the ambitions of the country, of its political leaders, of its institutional leaders, is changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, many scholars have acknowledged this early in the 2000s. There's a couple books I'm mentioning later in my class uh, by Martin Jocks when, Jock has, when China Rules the World, The End of the Western World and the Birth of the New Global Order, uh, The Dragon and the Elephant, China, Indian and the New World Order by David Smith, and then there's The Elephant and the Dragon, The Rise mm-hmm. of India and China. And what it means for all of us. And that's by Robin Meredith. Uh, these books are all basically about the same idea mm-hmm. that, that not only China, but India as well. And China really is, is far further along than India in terms of playing a leadership role in, in geopolitics. But the, the reality is that the world is changing and that China has become a major player in a variety of, of, of global spheres economics, politics, culture and that I I begin in the book by highlighting that facet. Uh, Most of those examples have little to do with higher education or with research universities, although some of them do connect. For example, it's the National Defense University that produced that Mm high-speed computer. And so uh, some of those uh, facts that I raised at the beginning of the book uh, implicate the research universities in China, but are really uh, presented to create this context, this broader context, or how life is changing in
1: China. Absolutely. So that's
2: why I kind of begin that way.
1: Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, it sort of sets the table nicely for, for the rest of the book and, and what's to come. And so it's kind of jumping back into some of the historical analysis that we see in the book, um, you talk about four different eras to really open up the different universities. Right. So we have the Republican era, the Socialist period, the Open Doors period, uh, and then the present period, which is uh, sort of this one characterized as uh, one of global ambition. Um, right. Yeah. And so I also noticed how you, you connected back to what we're seeing kind of today with the higher education sector in China to maybe what we saw after after World War Two in the United States uh, with sort of the, uh, the, the radical um, uh, sort of expansion. Through the 1960s. So, if you could maybe right. talk about some some of the, uh, just maybe if, if you have any uh, thoughts on, on that right. comparison and, and, and the periods that I mentioned as well.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think I was referencing the classic book, uh, The Academic Revolution, yep. I think by uh, Reisman and Jenks. Yep. Um, or Jenks and Reisman, I'm just confused, but <laughs> uh, they were really talking about the period you just mentioned in the U.S. post World War II, mm. the rapid expansion of the American University. Uh, State universities like UC Berkeley going from uh, 15,000 students to 28,000 students. Uh, UCLA going from 15,000 to almost 30,000 students. Almost overnight, Michigan State, University of Michigan, Penn State. This was this massification period in US higher education, but it was also an expansion of research spending and a commitment to the university as a research enterprise. This is what you see going on in China from the mid-1990s to the present. And so I've actually written an article for the Ministry of Education Mm. in China uh, as part of uh, my work at Renmin University about what I I describe as the Chinese academic revolution. Mm. And so this book is arguing that China has entered a a phase like that comparable to the U.S. academic revolution and that this new era since the mid-1990s Basically, since the adoption of projects 211 and 985, which are two national policies advanced by the Chinese Ministry of Education beginning in 1995. Since the adoption of these policies and the related activities and changes and transformation of the Chinese University, I argue that this period really constitutes a new era in the reform of the Chinese University. The first three years are, are well described in Ru Te Ho's work. Mm-hmm. A famous uh, Chinese uh, sci- a, a sinologist of higher education right. in China, um, working used to work at the University of Toronto. Uh, she identified the Republican period, roughly the time when Ch- China was formed as a nation state as a republic, as opposed as to being an empire uh, around 1911. That period until the socialist period under Mao, and then the socialist period up until the open-door period when Deng Xiaoping really reformed China in more of the open-door phase. Now many scholars uh, look at Chinese higher education today and connect it to this open-door phase. But uh, This is where the book differs from a lot of other writing. I I argue in the book, we argue in the book, that the open-door phase was a period of China catching up to the rest of the world because it fell behind during a period of stagnation when its in essence, was closed to the outside world. The open door period lasted roughly 20 years from the end of the Cultural Revolution to the mid-1990s, was a period of catching up, openness to the outside world, learning what they had fallen behind on. Um, What I argue is that this new phase is no longer simply about catching up. It's about assuming a leadership position in a variety of arenas, including in the representation and the development of its cultural institutions such as universities. It's not only that China wants to have great research universities to generate economic development as we see them doing in the US and in other countries like Germany, the UK, Japan, but they also want to have pride in their institutions. They want Peking University to be considered uh, along with Oxford and Cambridge and Harvard and Stanford. Um, it's not quite there yet, but that's what they would like to see.
1: Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of gets into my next question. Um, you know, why, why look at uh, these uh, research universities specifically? And then uh, why, why look at the role of the professor uh, as sort of an actor?
2: OK, okay that's a good question. So uh, the, the ethnographic data collection, the case studies that we doc- that we conducted really I would call them ethnographic case studies. Uh, only one, my study at Minzu, really would would really fit the ethnographic tradition of extended time uh, within a, and among a group of people. The others were more like more along the lines of ethnographic case studies. Um, the reason I wanted to focus on faculty life is because, from my perspective. the the, the radical transformation of the Chinese university is about research and the expansion of research, the embrace of research, the development of academic science. And when you're talking about research as an activity at a university, you're talking about the work of faculty members. Mm -hmm. And so to understand how this research transformation is taking place or whether it's taking place, I think the key actors to engage our faculty members who actually do the research, who have uh, different levels of expectations uh, layered on them, uh, how are they responding to those expectations, how are promotion and uh, recruitment practices changing that impact faculty. So faculty are really the key players in that process. Now, We also, in so many of the academics we interviewed were also administrators. In China, many of the leading administrators are also faculty members which is also true in academic administration to some extent in the U.S. And so even though we focused on faculty and conducted over 70 interviews with faculty members, um, a a good number of them were also in administrative positions. And so we did get an administrative uh, view. What the book doesn't include really is a student's point of view, and that really – wasn't necessarily our focus. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were to uh, strengthen the study, maybe interviewing graduate students involved in research activity uh, would have been a way to do that. We, we likely would not have engaged undergraduates too much. I see.
1: Well, it, it certainly adds, I think, an interesting facet that you might not see in in, in other uh, other research projects. You know, so let's move along into the into the meat of the book and open up with uh, with the first university that you. Um, that you have uh, Tsinghua University which uh, I, I believe is dubbed the MIT of China um, if you can maybe uh, just give us a, a, just a brief uh, a little bit of a history at least um, you know some of the interesting points it has a fascinating foundation uh, of, for yes. university if you can get in that a I, little bit
2: I think Tsinghua is the most interesting case of them all actually mm. It's funny when I, when I give talks about this book in China, I always begin my talk with saying, you know, in the U.S., we call MIT the Tsinghua of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> they always like that. Really? But, uh, you know, Tsinghua has a very interesting history because it was founded as as somewhat of a training ground for Chinese students going to the U.S. as part of the Boxer Indemnity Fund uh, um, funds that the U.S. Had, U.S. had to – reinvest in China due to some overpayment. It's a, it's a complex story, right. that part. Right. Uh, I don't know all the details, but so basically, Tsinghua was founded somewhat as a Western-oriented university in China, at least in terms of preparing students to go abroad. Um, and then, of course, it closed during the uh, late thir- mid to late 30s, during the Japanese occupation of China. Uh, Tsinghua, uh, many of the faculty and students moved to Kunming. As part of uh, Southwest United University, which really was a combination of Tsinghua, Peking, and Bankai University uh, for a number of years, and then uh, Tsinghua eventually was reformed, uh, restructured under the under Mao's Communist Revolution in kind of the Soviet tradition, um, and then uh, Tsinghua became famous for producing uh, uh, what one scholar called "red, Red engineers." Uh, Basically, engineers and applied scientists loyal to the Communist Party, loyal to the Communist uh, mission, and so Tsinghua became very famous for the production of, 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 of loyalist engineers. And this this is somewhat of a contrast with Peking, which was a, a kind of a center of criticism of the society, uh, and it, it sometimes led faculty and students to different points along the way in terms of the. Op- positional and more uh, progressive or liberational views uh, that that Peking faculty students tended to have. Um, I do remember uh, reading somewhere a a famous saying that uh, Tsinghua graduates are more likely to wind up in the government Mm -hmm. and Peking graduates are more likely to wind up in jail. (laughs) I I think that's an exaggeration, uh, but there is a a somewhat of a risk resistant or oppositional point of view is part of Peking, it's less a part of Tsinghua. And so of course, Tsinghua has really become the top university in China in terms of applied science and engineer engineering and in terms of building these kind of entrepreneurial um, capital-driven ties to right. business and industry mm-hmm. and to developing collaborative university industry research projects. Uh, no other university in China is close to Tsinghua in this regard. Uh, maybe Zhejiang University in Hangzhou is pretty strong, too. They have a great industrial park there, too. But uh, there are a few industrial parks around the world that rival uh, Tsinghua's Tu's Park. It's right. just pretty amazing. Right. And you can find Google and other kinds of companies Absolutely. Uh, uh, headquartered there.
1: Yeah, I think uh, in the book you you, you lay out... A lot of the companies that are there, and it's Google. I think you had Microsoft, uh, Samsung. I believe is there as well, the Korean company. And uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that that Toos Park and uh, sorry, uh, sort of how the um, how the university really cultivates its talent, and you know how how professors are working with um, working at to do this with with their research as well.
2: Well, they really try to. uh Part of it's aimed at graduate students and uh, the next generation of innovators and creating incubator opportunities in Tuespark for graduate students who have new ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, most of the new ideas don't go anywhere, but giving them a, a seed money and a location to develop products or ideas and, and really rub elbows with, with entrepreneurs and venture capitalists that's the idea. Um, and so uh, this, this park is really an elaboration of that idea borrowed to a, from, to a great extent from the U.S. and some of the things we, do, we see uh, at Stanford and in Boston around Route 128 and Silicon Valley in California. It's that kind of idea is to bring entrepreneurs, innovators, venture capitalists, and really faculty and, and mostly doctoral students who are doing research uh, together uh, rubbing elbows, sharing ideas, uh, learning from one another, and, okay. and even mentoring doctoral students. Now, I should add that, you know, not everyone in in China, just like in the U.S., is happy about this model of the university. Mm-hmm. And so just like in the U.S. where maybe traditionalists or folks in the humanities and social sciences, science areas, who sometimes feel left out or marginalized by this new vision of the entrepreneurial university, uh, we we found some of the same kind of resistance at Tsinghua. Uh, Many of the faculty did not like this this kind of a model of a university and saw it somehow sacrificing uh, kind of this notion of pure knowledge or knowledge for the sake of knowledge. So the some of the same tensions around what might call academic capitalism uh, exist in china as you see at u.s universities hmm.
1: okay well uh, maybe going on to that uh, a little bit further the, sort of understanding the faculty and and how sort of um as their as their uh university has sort of internationalized or, or maybe modernized we like to say right. what what kind of pressures are are the faculty there facing uh and and, and sort of how are they facing that
2: uh, and you, you're not you, now. You're talking about uh, Chinese universities broadly, and not just Tsinghua, right? Or are you referencing re-
1: re- 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 just Tsinghua? Uh Well, I mean, I, I believe in in the more uh, broadly, yeah. In, in the in the Tsinghua chapter, it talks about um, sort of how how because of the push for um, you know the pressures that they have to have for uh, internationalization and pushing them so high right. into this. This um, sort of global knowledge-based economic leader—that right. it's even harder, perhaps, on, on their faculty there to, you know, right. publish and, and research and other things.
2: Yeah, you know, this this is this is the theme of all four cases actually. I see. Um, it was very pronounced at Tsinghua and and Peking and Renmin, less so at Minzu. I should add that for most scholars of Chinese of the Chinese university. They would not group MinZu into this category. Mm. Uh, MinZu is really not uh, the kind of research university that you would compare to Renmin, Tsinghua, and Peking. However, uh, MinZu was included in some of the same major uh, Ministry of Education projects because of its importance as a minority university. And I wanted to include it because I think minority affairs in China, just like in the US, mm. are, are an important aspect of of the role of the university in society. And so I felt it was critical to include Minzu. But even at Minzu, these pressures around internationalization and publishing and academic capitalism, generating revenue, generating grants through one's one's research, these pressures are are throughout universities in China that are included in projects 211 and 985. I, I might add that projects 211 includes about 100 universities, and Project 985 includes around 39 universities. Mm -hmm. All of those universities included in those two national initiatives are targeted for development as major research universities. And so the faculty at these universities experience incredible pressure related to generating revenue, uh, publishing, and getting engaged internationally. Mm -hmm. Now imagine being a 50-year-old professor at one of these universities who doesn't speak English. Mm. A lot of the international journals, they conduct their business in English. That's an incredible disadvantage for a scholar to have to deal with if they have pressure to publish internationally. Um, And there are many fields in China where publishing internationally doesn't really serve the the transformative needs or goals of your research. Mm -hmm. I remember interviewing a professor at Renmin University who was talking about the pressure on uh, rural development scholars to publish internationally, and yet their research was about transforming uh, uh, the rural countryside in China in terms of developing and creating economic opportunities, for rural peasants. The issues didn't necessarily appeal or relate, to a variety of international issues, and so they felt the need to publish their findings in China, relative to Chinese policymakers, not necessarily in international journals. And for them, it didn't seem uh, suitable for them to be pursuing international outlets, and it, it it distanced them from the ideas of transformation and social change within their own country. And so there are a lot of uh, problems and complexities with this international push in China. And uh, there are many faculty who resist some of these uh, these, these uh, challenges that they're presented mm-hmm. with. Uh, they just don't always make sense for them.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I think I think that definitely. If you, if you go and read the book, you'll definitely see that under all the universities, it's it's listed as internationalization, the pressures, what they have to face, sort of um, you know what what's going on with with their right. own personal research and, and and things like that. So I think that's reflected very nicely in the book. Um, for the sake of time, I think we'll, we'll go on to Peking sure. University, uh, or as it's uh, known uh, locally, Beida. I Beida. think is what, what everyone would would refer to it in, in China. Yep. And uh, maybe and you kind of jumped on it a little bit, but kind of talk about uh, Beida's legacy and and you know uh, I think they you mentioned like the May Fourth Movement and, yep. and some of these other um, uh, reforms or protests, I guess, uh, in, in the book as well. If you want to take that one.
2: Well, they also like Tsinghua, uh, early on had a lot of Western influences operating on the university. Um, uh, but unlike Tsinghua, it, 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 it found ways and it, it followed a path somewhat different from Tsinghua. And that many of those, uh, democratic, um, progressive, uh, impulses, uh, found roots at, at Beida and have and have existed throughout its history uh, still today. There are many outspoken academics and, and students at Beida. Uh, of course, Beida is famous for its students and faculty playing a key role in the May 4th, uh, 1990, 1919 uh, cultural movements uh, in China. And of course, many uh, Beida students um, played a key role in the Tiananmen protests in 89. And so, uh, Beida has, throughout its history, been a source of, uh, been a key institution in providing a critical voice, uh, to some extent, to what's going on in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not always easy, and sometimes uh, faculty and students have paid a price for that, um, and that's still the reality today. Uh, but again, uh, Beida still is seen and, and is looked to for its unique voice in terms of uh, offering a critical analysis of Chinese society and government and politics, and uh, there's a certain degree of acceptance of that and expectation of that. Um, It was also the the key site of personnel reform in the early 2000s when administrators and government officials tried to reform uh, faculty life, basically, in China and introduce more bureaucratized uh, modalities in terms of faculty promotion faculty recruitment. Uh, They didn't entirely succeed in reforming the faculty personnel policies. They did make many changes, though, uh, that eventually trickled down to other institutions throughout Chinese society. You know, in in China, uh, Peking University is kind of like Harvard to some extent Mm, in the U.S., and there's this idea of isomorphism, or it's also talked about as institutional drift. Mm. And so in some sense, Every university in China, maybe with the exception of Tsinghua, <laughs> wants to be more like uh, Beida or, or Peking. And so many of the personnel changes that took place at, at Beida in the early 2000s uh, are evident at other universities throughout China. They were evident at all the universities we visited. And so um, there's much more of an institutionalized, clear set of guidelines now to recruiting and hiring faculty and in terms of the promotion process, being much more clearly spelled out. In the past, uh, some of these things were left a little bit to guangxi, uh, mm, right. which basically is a Chinese word for connections and ties right. and friendships and those kinds of things. And that was seen as uh, counterproductive to creating a more competitive environment uh, for, for encouraging faculty productivity. Okay. And so the government officials and and university bureaucrats basically wanted faculty to life to be a little bit more competitive and to increase productivity. And they partially succeeded in changing the policies to do that. They didn't get all, everything they wanted, but they they made enough changes to uh, create a, a really diff- a different environment for faculty life in China. Right. So now there are a lot of. Uh, Fairly clear rules in terms of publications. In, in fact, one of my criticisms in the book is that there's almost too much rigidity mm-hmm. to the, the promotion procedures in, in China. Uh, too many things are are scored. Uh, that you know, there. I think it was Einstein that said that uh, some things that can be counted shouldn't be counted, or some of the things that count the most can't be counted. Oh, uh, but in Chinese promotion processes, I think there's a tendency to want to count or score everything. And so so there's a little bit of an emphasis on, on, for example, getting points if you publish in an international journal Mm. versus publishing in a national journal. Um, And there's not always a differentiation between writing, say, a critical essay versus an empirically-based study. Those are sometimes treated the same way. And that's typically not the case in the U.S., where we involve faculty much more in the peer review process, and so we wouldn't necessarily count everything the same, and sometimes we wouldn't even produce a number or a quotient to describe someone's performance. It's it's more uh, diverse than that in the U.S., and that's probably still a shortcoming in China.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I think you mentioned specifically quotas in there for you know hitting a mark on.
2: Oh uh, yeah, that's there's also quotas in terms of uh, the number of associate and full professors the department may be allowed to have right this creates a different kind of problem in that it it, that's for imagine that you and i are working at the same the same sociology department and uh uh, with 10 other associate professors and uh there's one opening in our department for a full professor and the government instead it's only allocated one opening to our department for next year, you and I might meet the minimum qualifications to be promoted, along with our 10 colleagues. So all 12 of us may submit materials to be promoted to full professor, but only one of us can be promoted. So this creates competition between you and I, and you and I amongst our colleagues. Uh, This is very different from the U.S., where there's typically not a quota or a limit to the number of full professors a particular department can have. But in China, uh, top institutions have specific quotas on the number of positions at the level of associate professor, which is known as Fu Jiaoshou, and the number at full professor, which is called Zhang Jiaoshou. And so this, this creates a, a more competitive environment among colleagues. It's at times, it's counterproductive. Right. I might not tell you everything I'm doing. If I have to compete with you for the next promotion, it's, it's not know, always it also discourages so. collaboration to right. some extent. Why would you and I collaborate if we're competing for the same one spot in our department? So I, I think this is a, a problematic area.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so let's um, move on, I think, to the next university you you, um, you guys have in the book, and, and you've already mentioned it, but Renmin University or yep. People's university and uh, a much different history of its founding and with its connection to the CCP. So do you want to discuss that a little bit?
2: Yeah. Renmin plays a very, uh, close is has a close relationship to the Chinese government. It's founded by this, the Chinese communist party in the early 1950s. Um, I, I think that, uh, the central theme of that chapter really focused on internationalization, in part because Renmin has a very, maybe the top international affairs program in China, or at least one of the top two or three programs. It's very strong in uh, international law, also. And so, uh, so many uh, Renmin scholars are often uh, quoted and turned to by the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, to comment on various geopolitical issues. And so, uh, Renmin uh, has many faculty who are heavily involved and are considered leaders in the international realm. Plus, the university has really committed a great resource to this internationalizing campus. They adopted an international uh, summer term a few years back, and now they bring in uh, tons of uh, students over the summertime. Foreign teachers as well, and uh, a lot, many of the classes are taught in English. Of course, that's always been a problem in China in terms of recruiting foreign students, is the Chinese language can be challenging for, for many foreigners. And so, they've introduced a lot of English language classes as part of internationalization. Mm-hmm. And so, um, that that case study really focuses on the internationalization of top universities. Uh, by the way, almost all the key points I make in the Ren, we make in the Renmin chapter could also have been made in uh, the Peking and the Tsinghua chapters too. Both of those universities are also highly internationalized. Um, But of course, as some of the faculty at Renmin pointed out, there are some negatives to the the rapid internationalization of the Chinese university. And uh, some of the more critical scholars fear that uh, important aspects of Chinese culture that are part of the Chinese university uh, may be lost along the way in this rapid Internationalization,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I, and I that's, think, sorry. yeah, I think they uh, you specifically <laughs> mentioned that. You know, the, is this a new form of colonialism, sort of uh, yes. adopting the Western model? Uh, yes. that's something that the, they specifically uh, had mentioned uh, yep. or were concerned about. Okay, um, and- some scholars,
2: yeah, a couple critics, a couple of scholars that read me were very critical of it, uh, and 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 felt uh, and used that term uh, colonialism. Mm-hmm cultural colonialism, uh, it's a little bit of an odd use because the Chinese government and the Chinese university officials are choosing to to move in this direction. Um, By the same token, you could argue that if you want to be engaged in academic science at a global level, you have little choice but to play by the rules of of the world's most developed universities, which tend to be in the West.
0: Right, right.
2: So on the other hand there is a sense of, of, of not really having a choice. Absolutely. And of course, global science is mostly conducted in English. Yep. And so that's another issue that, that many Chinese scholars have to deal with. I mentioned that earlier. Right.
1: Um, and this, uh, this chapter also brings out something that hasn't been brought up before um, is the gender differences with professors yep. and the barriers that they face. Um, this has been a hot topic in uh, Chinese society right now. Uh, yep. You know, a couple new books that have come out recently do you want to kind of talk about some of those? Yeah,
2: and actually, I, I published an article a couple of years ago on the, the experiences of women academics in China. And so in China, women constitute about 50, 50% mm. of the faculty, but only about 10% of the full professors. Mm. And so something happens along the way. You know, this happens in the U.S. It's actually a global phenomenon um, it, the women don't progress to the highest levels In in the corporate world, we call it the glass ceiling, Um, but there's there's a variety of reasons. Uh, One of which is uh, China is still a rather rather traditional society in terms of family life. And so women academics uh, describe to me uh, a reality of having two, sometimes three jobs. Mm -hmm. Right? They have their faculty job, they have their job managing their home life and preparing dinner, the third job, by the way, was tutoring their one child. Uh, given the pressure that Chinese families feel and the pressure that's placed on their children in a, in a society with a one-child policy, it's, very, it's imperative that that child does extremely well in school. And so when Chinese children get home from school, they go to school at home most of the evening. And that, that task of tutoring the child often falls, falls on the woman mm-hmm. and so many women who I interviewed who were faculty, academics described having this third job and so these kinds of pressures really make it in, make it very difficult for women to advance to uh beyond associate professor to full professor because as you know uh, oftentimes uh, to in order to publish to get research grants to become the highest ranking professors that you can be Oftentimes that, that comes out of family life, some of that extra time and effort. Um, many women either don't want to or can't devote that extra time. Sometimes they don't want to. And this, I can recall many women saying to me, I'm going to have one child in my lifetime. Why would I sacrifice time that I can spend with my child to do research or do extra work at home when I only have that one chance? So some of it is, uh, is pressure and a feeling that they don't have a choice. And other times, it's a choice they really uh, want to make to to put family first. Now, of course, men in Chinese society typically don't face those same sets of choices. Right. Absolutely. So this is an issue uh, probably, uh, necessitates that probably necessitates, from my in my from my perspective, greater institutional support mechanisms for for women and and mothers at the Chinese university. Mm-hmm. I think that this is something that is probably needed.
1: Absolutely. Uh. So moving along for for time's sake, uh, look. We we'll, we'll yep. talked a little bit about it, yes. um, but Minzu University, the the next, okay, uh, my, next and final university. If you want to um, introduce Minzu University, and then also maybe just a little bit about uh, ethnic divisions in in China. Okay.
2: Today. So Minzu is a very special university for me because I spent a year there, uh, living there and teaching there. It's a, it's a, a great university. It's not typically considered one of China's top research universities. However, in the area, in various fields related to ethnic minority issues like ethnology, sociology, uh, minority language and literature, it's the best university in China Mm. in those areas. So they have really world class faculty in in those fields. Mm. Um, So in China, there are 55 uh, ethnic minority groups officially recognized by the Chinese government. Uh, there's 56 ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. The Han majority constitutes about 90% of the population, and the 55 remaining Minzu, Minzu means national ethnic group, the 55 remaining Minzu are considered minority groups. Okay, so those, but the fact is, the government recognizes 55 ethnic groups, but there are many, many more. Uh, some of those ethnic groups are a conglomeration of many ethnic groups. Uh, in fact, in the 1950s when Mao launched the ethnic, uh, ethnic uh, classification project, he sent hundreds of ethnologists and sociologists into the field to classify ethnicities in China. Mm-hmm. Over 400 Chinese groups filed for status as an ethnic minority group, but eventually they settled on 55, and so Minzu is represent, represents all those ethnic groups. and. Uh, And as I mentioned earlier, about sixty to seventy percent of the student body are ethnic minorities. So this is a very special campus, and it also puts a lot of money and and effort into the humanities, the arts mainly, dance, music, ethnic folk dance and music. Uh, You know, one of the hardest concert tickets in Beijing to get is a is a seat at a Minzu University uh, minority student production. Very nice. Uh, the talent, uh, the singing and musical talent, and the dance talent at Minzu is really off the charts. Mm. And so those tickets are hard to get. But what's interesting about Minzu is you can walk around in the evening and you can see various ethnic groups, groups of students practicing various dance performances, rituals. Very interesting experience. Uh, another thing that's interesting. Um, not not all ethnic minorities in China speak the national language. Mm -hmm. And so Minzu has a number of students who actually come to the university to learn uh, Hanyu Putonghua, which is Mandarin to uh, most Americans. And so they have many students there who actually don't speak the national language, Mm -hmm. but are learning the language. They They take special classes for a year or two before they actually start at the university. And so the the diversity of uh, ethnic backgrounds at Minzu is is, is quite amazing. Right. It's very different than being at Beida or mm-hmm. Tsinghua or Renmin. Um, what's really quite fun is around Minzu are are many ethnic minority uh, restaurants. And so some of the best food I think in Beijing is right around the gates of Minzu University. Uh, but anyways, I, I taught uh, three or four classes during my Fulbright there had a wonderful experience, met students from Tibet and from Xinjiang, and uh, really enjoyed interacting with them. Mm-hmm. And I, I got a much uh, deeper appreciation of ethnic diversity in China. And some of the challenges, actually, that the Chinese government faces in really promoting national identity. It's, it's not an easy thing in China.
1: Right, right. And maybe quickly, can you talk about uh, how the professors... At, at uh, Minzu University, sort of the, their role with with the students coming from from these different backgrounds. How, do, how does that interplay work?
2: Well, many of the you know one of the things that's really interesting about Minzu is how serious uh, the professors are in their commitment to ethnic minority affairs in China. And so many of the professors actually are from uh, the rural countryside and from ethnic minority backgrounds, or if they're Han faculty. If they're Han, part of the Han majority, they're very committed mm-hmm. to the ethnic uh, diversity issues at Minzu, and so it's a really a su- very a supportive environment for students from diverse backgrounds and uh, quite a unique uh, university in that regard. And so I found the faculty to be incredibly uh, knowledgeable and learned around ethnicity and race. Many of them study uh, have studied abroad. In oh. the U.S. and other countries, mm-hmm. and have traveled to the U.S. to study multicultural issues in the U.S. I met professors who were experts on American Native Native American tribes and nice. and uh, languages, et cetera. Uh, we knew some of the same scholars actually, but they had gone to the U.S. to study the Navajo uh, tribal colleges and uh, Indian reservation schools and the, the ways in which uh, bilingual education was practiced. On some of the tribal uh, reservations in the US and mm-hmm. in the schools in the US. And they were very knowledgeable and uh, interested in this a- aspect of cultural and linguistic diversity uh, because these are big challenges in China. One of the big challenges that some of these professors deal with is how do you uh, promote ethnic minorities uh, establishing or having a sense of national identity, being able to speak the national language, and yet how do you help? Them to preserve and strengthen their own local cultures, mm-hmm. their own their own uh, linguistic abilities tied to their particular region or community. You know that, that's a global challenge that countries around the world face.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I know you, I know you have to go teach a class. Yeah,
2: can talk so. for another three hours. Not-
1: <laughs> absolutely. So um, I guess just wrapping up uh, with, with our final question here. I do appreciate your time, but. Uh, what What's sort of next on your plate? What's the next project you got coming up? Uh, okay. Well,
2: I'll be leaving for China uh, next week, actually. Uh, I'm working on a study with one a doctoral student at Renmin University, and we're looking at differences in the, the dissertation and graduate experience mm-hmm. of social science uh, doctoral students at UCLA and at Renmin University. And so basically we're trying to understand how is the dissertation process and the preparation for that dissertation different among Chinese doctoral students in the social social sciences compared to U.S. doctoral students, and we're mostly focusing on Renmin and UCLA. Right. So we're in the middle of that project, and that, that's kind of next on my plate. Okay, and I and to continue working on my Chinese course.
1: Fantastic. Well, uh, I, this has been this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I thank you, Dr. Robert Rhodes, for for agreeing to come here and. I, I encourage everyone to go check out his book, which is coming out later in the year uh, China's Rising Research Universities, A New Era of Global Ambition. Um, thank you very much, and uh, I, I hope everyone has learned something. Thank you.
0: With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.